If we were allowed to read the Bible as we do all other books, we would admire its beauties, treasure its worthy thoughts, and account for all its absurd, grotesque, and cruel things by saying that its authors lived in rude, barbaric times. But we're told that it's written by inspired men, that it contains the will of God, that it is perfect, pure, and true in all of its parts, that the source and standard on all moral and religious truth, that is the star and anchor of all human hope, the only guide for man, the torch in nature's night. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is the amazing Zach Murphy, who is a filmmaker, a lighting designer. And when I say filmmaker and lighting designer, let me be a little bit more specific. He's made some really fantastic short and long form films, some of which I've been lucky enough to score. For many years, the way that we met each other was that he was the lighting designer at the Public Theater, which, if you don't know, it is the fanciest, coolest theater in New York City that does all the coolest stuff, including a little musical called, what was that about? Uh, Hamilton? They produced that one. Hammy. To be clear, I wasn't the lighting designer. I was the lighting head. You were also the lighting designer for many of the subjective theater shows, which is a theater company that you and I were in together when I lived in New York. That's right, like 10 or 20. I have no idea how many we did. (laughs) No clue. Zach and I have done a lot of shows in a lot of theaters in New York City together and several films. We continue to work together, even though we now live 3000 miles apart. The thing I love about Zach and the reason that he's on the podcast is in addition to being a fantastic artist, he is also a brilliant guy. And he recommended my favorite, most interesting, weird book that we've covered on this podcast so far. And it is called Some Mistakes of Moses by Robert G. Ingersoll. If you are an atheist, this is a book that you really should read if you have not read it already. And if you are a Christian, or if you are a believer of the Old Testament, there are some questions in here that you really need to answer for yourself before you can move forward. The thing about this book that I found the most fascinating is that many of these arguments are the four horsemen Richard Dawkins, et cetera, arguments that I hear today that I thought that they invented, but they have been around since at least 1879 when Robert G. Ingersoll put them all in this book. That is both inspiring to think that there was someone who was really seriously questioning this stuff 150 years ago and also depressing to realize that these questions have been basically gone unanswered for 150 years. It's short. It's only 100 something pages, but it's really dense. It's got hundreds of arguments in it, hundreds of interesting facts about the Bible. How did you come to this book? How did you find it? I was reading some interview with Gore Vidal, and he was talking about some people that inspired him. And he said the name Robert Ingersoll. And I had never even heard of that person because I somehow managed to skip college or forget a lot of it. <laughs> and I started looking him up. And this, the first book that I found was Some Mistakes of Moses. I kind of just dig through the stuff that isn't quite as mainstream to see if I'm interested in his off works before I dig into his big works. And then I found this book. I bought a cheap copy of it and I fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with it. So I think to help tell the story of what this book is, I want to get us all back into the mindset of what was happening in the year 1879, because 1879 was quite a long time ago. So because I know that a lot of people aren't going to have a good strong pull on what was going on there, I'll give everyone a listening in on an 1879 greatest hits list of the things that were happening there. The first big thing is the Constitution of California is ratified meaning congratulations, 1879, California, you now have the longest collection of laws in the world. The first United States artificial ice rink opens in what was called New York's Gilmore Gardens, where just two months later, they would retitle it Madison Square Gardens. 
put you in the context of everything. Doc Holliday is out there being friends with Wyatt Earp. The first transcontinental railroad is completed and linked up in Utah. William White, the first African-American to play Major League Baseball, plays one game in the Providence Grays. I mean, huge things are happening this year. A big scientific one, Thomas Edison, tests successfully. The first carbonized thread two months later created the light bulb and demonstrated the light bulb for the first time in Menlo Park, New Jersey. The Long Depression was still going on from 73 to 79. Something else that's really big, giving to what the writer was talking about, this guy named Henry George, who first publishes his first book called Progress and Poverty, which at the time would sell more books than any other book except the Bible. Religiously, the founding of the Church of Christ scientists happened in Boston. That's not the Scientologists. That's Christian scientists. Yeah, Mary Baker Eddy. Yeah, the more primitive version of Christianity, right? The healing through science prayer. Christian restorist Charles Taze Russell publishes the first issue of the monthly Zion's Watchtower and heralds Christ's presence, which we know now as the Watchtower, which becomes the most widely circulated magazine in the world. I mean, this is during the Anglo-Zulu War, which was going on. It was a long time ago. Some really big things, Reynolds versus the United States, in which the Supreme Court for the first time ruled that free exercise of religion is not absolute, meaning that Reynolds, who's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormon Church, was a practicing polygamist, had to obey the laws of the government officials that have the right to regulate behavior as part of religious practices that are considered odious and violate basic notions of morality. Despite the fact that in the Pentateuch they are condoned. A ton. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the year that milk is sold in glass bottles for the first time, right? <laughs> this is 1879. Things were happening. And of course, the publishing of this book, Some Mistakes in Moses. I think the story of the book can be best put together is sort of built around the not too distant of what we're all experiencing here in our time with social media attacks and the form of cancel culture. Remember Robert Ingersoll, he was America's atheist, but he was also known as America's greatest agnostic. He would go around and he would give these lectures because he was paid like a rock star to the atheists and the devout, to colleges and colleagues. He never really gave the same lecture each time. They went to these things, sort of had their own lectures. They would go around and give many lectures quoting him or saying that he said things when he really didn't say them or breaking the meaning of what he was saying based on their interpretations of what he said, which is kind of ironic considering the topic. Reporters would come around after and write articles and create smear campaigns against Ingersoll based on these secondhand lectures, or they would go directly to his lectures and get the reports wrong, as well as using their own translations of what he meant. And after a while, he grew a little tired of people likely getting it all wrong or was just tired of people blaming him for things he didn't really say. So we put it down in a big collection. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's back up. So it's 1879. The year 1879 is an important year in American and world history. And it really is a lot like maybe the year that the iPhone came out for us, where it really kicked off a revolution. The Civil War had ended. There was a lot of social change in America. We were almost a generation away from the Civil War. And a lot of things that we now take for granted were being invented. One of the biggest things that I think people need to know is that lecture circuits, Chautauquas, this was the scene. I mean, this was what people did for entertainment. Going to see people like Robert G. Ingersoll speak, that was what you did on a Friday night. And these people would go from town to town, do a whistle-stop lecture circuit, and just talk. You might see Robert G. Ingersoll 
tonight. And then tomorrow it might be Mark Twain. Him doing a lecture circuit is a fairly common and was sort of a popular form of entertainment. The thing that I didn't know at all was that this guy was basically like Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins. He was a public atheist who would go around and basically apply logic to the Bible, confounding Christians, essentially. During a dangerous time to do that. Yeah, and I mean, think about being in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, and giving a lecture like this. You're in the middle of nowhere. If they decide they don't like you, and they, I mean... Who are you going to call? <laughs> yeah, I mean, would you go to a Baptist church in the middle of Plano, Texas, and tell everybody that Jesus wasn't real? It <laughs> takes some balls. Yeah, which is why I really like constantly throughout the entire book, he keeps saying, you know, hey, if I'm wrong, I'm going to go to hell. Sorry about that. But also, this is what I think. He says it often. Yeah, and so I sort of equate him finally putting all those thoughts into this book as sort of a proof of what he really means, which is funny because so many people can interpret the Bible in so many different ways, and he's sort of doing what he can to write it down so no one can interpret him funny. I didn't know that he was a lecturer when I was reading this, and it makes so much sense because a lot of it is nonfiction that we're used to where he's presenting facts and expounding upon them. But then sometimes he goes into these things where it sounds like he's playing characters. Okay, well, what would you say if I said this? Well, I would say this. There's a section where he says, now imagine two men. One is a devoted father and a loving husband. He gets to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, what did you do with your life? And the man says, well, I tended to my wife. I was a pillar of my community. I raised my three sons and they are all great men of the world. And St. Peter says, well, did you believe in the story about the snake in the garden? And he says, no, I figured that was a metaphor. All right, well, to hell with you. And then he takes the next guy and says, what did you do? He says, well, I was an alcoholic. I abandoned my family. I killed a man. And he says, well, did you believe in the story of the snake? And he says, of course I did. He goes, great, on to heaven with you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the preface, he writes, people who love their enemies should at least tell the truth about their friends. I always thought that was kind of great. I would have loved to have heard his lecture from this rotund, handsome gentleman <laughs> Were people yelling at him while it was happening? I would imagine. I would imagine. He says somewhere in the book, should it turn out that I'm the worst man in the whole world, the story of the flood will remain just as improbable as before, and the contradictions of the Pentateuch will still demand an explanation. We should do some vocabulary, and I'm sorry if I'm talking down to anyone, but Pentateuch is the five books of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. The chapter on the Pentateuch is very satisfyingly in this book, chapter 5. Before we dive into it, I just want to read the title of the first chapter of this book, which is chapter one, he who endeavors to control the mind by force is a tyrant. He who submits is a slave. Those are the first words of the book. Yeah. He says, Christianity cannot live with any other form of faith. If that religion be true, there is but one savior, one inspired book. And but one little narrow grass path that leads to heaven, such a religion is necessary, uncompromising, unreasoning, aggressive, and insolent. Christianity has held all other creeds and forms in infinite contempt, right? Divided in the world into enemies and friends and verified the awful declaration of its founder, a declaration that wet with the blood of the sword he came to bring and made the horizon of a thousand years lurid with the faggot's flame, is what he says. Yeah, it's pretty intense stuff. <laughs> I think my favorite quote in the opening, he's got a giant opening chapter, is, if we were allowed to read the Bible as we do all other books, we would admire its beauties, treasure its worthy thoughts, and account for all its absurd, grotesque, and cruel things by saying that its authors lived in rude, barbaric times. 
but we're told that it's written by inspired men, that it contains the will of God, that it is perfect, pure, and true in all of its parts, that the source and standard on all moral and religious truth, that is the star and anchor of all human hope, the only guide for man, the torch in nature's night. It's important to remember also 1879, we are big fans of Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Building a Bridge to the 19th Century, in which he points out that people in the 19th century were much more verbose and spoke in these cascading clauses. And so the language is different because everybody read. So everybody spoke as if they were reading from a book. The style of this book, Sam Harris would never write a book like this. It's just not conversational. So the style of this book is very old. The first five chapters are about why there is a need for understanding the Bible in what at the time was a different way. And chapter five, the one called the Pentateuch, is essentially an argument that we should read these books as if they were literature and address the factual anomalies in them or decide that they're all miracles and that nothing in the book is actually true. This was a radical approach, I guess, at the time to read this not as an inspired work, but as an account, because the church has always walked this line where they say the Bible is history and the Bible is allegory. And he really points out that you have to pick one or the other, and it doesn't make sense either way. He sees that churches flip-flop. You can't flip-flop. You can't cherry-pick exactly what you want for the argument's sake, not if you're really devout. Denominations at the time of the United States remained overwhelmingly Protestant, and the dominant Protestant ethos deeply influenced the federal government's policy towards Native Americans as well. The government authorized religious institutions to establish boarding schools to assimilate the Native American children, and at some point stated that, quote, civilization and the gospel go hand in hand. I mean, this is happening 1879. Is that really much different from today? I mean, one of the things that he points out in chapter three, he bemoans the fact that in 1879, politicians have to feign religiosity to get elected. Is that any different? Can you imagine an atheist getting elected to the Senate anywhere other than maybe California? And even in California, maybe not. It's chapter three where it says our government should be entirely and purely secular, right? That's his whole big thinking then. He said, if there are not liberals enough to hold the balance of power, this government will be destroyed. He doesn't mean liberals the way that we mean liberals. He means people who are willing to think outside the bounds of Bronze Age mythology. So the first section of the book is just setting up a need for this kind of critique. And then it gets into the real fun part of the book for me, which was chapters 6 through 17 are basically going chapter by chapter, the creation through Noah, digging into some of the details that don't make sense. Let's just point some of them out. In chapter 4, which is called Man and Woman, is the heart of the entire book to me. He says, whoever reads our sacred book is compelled to believe it or suffer forever the torment of the lost. We're told that we have privilege of examining it for ourselves, but this privilege is only extended to us on the condition that we believe it, whether it appears reasonable or not. We may disagree with others as much as we please upon the meaning of all the pages of the Bible, but we must not deny the truth of a single word. We must believe that the book is inspired. If we obey its every precept without believing in its inspiration, we will be damned just as certainly as though we disobeyed its every word. We have no right to weigh it in the scales of reason, to test it by the laws of nature, the facts of observation and experience. To do this, we're told, is to put ourselves above the word of God and sit in judgment of the works of our creator. When I read that chapter, I was like, Oh, Laura, let's put the seatbelt on. <laughs> I can remember in my lifetime as a voter, even, there was a debate 
where one of the questions was, do you believe every word in the Bible, a presidential debate? I think everyone on the stage said yes. That's a pretty common, I mean, if you're a Christian, and I know some Christians, I go cycling with a church group. We don't share a lot of political or ideological similarities, but they are very fast and really fantastic cyclists. So I like going with them sometimes. But one of the things that I hear them talking about is about belief in the Bible. And they say they believe every word in the Bible. And one of the things that Ingersoll points out is that that's actually not possible. The document itself is not internally consistent. Many of these stories don't make sense. What he does is interrogate really the details of some of these statements. It reminds me of conspiracy theories. First question of a conspiracy theory, if I tell you that there's a government agent named Q who's trying to get all the pedophiles out of the government, that sounds intriguing in a sort of Robert Ludlum spy novel sort of way. If you ask why, you can come up with all these reasons why, but if you ask how, that's where it all falls apart. I joke with some of my friends about the QAnon conspiracy theory. If you believe in these kinds of conspiracy theories, you've never had a job. <laughs> if you've ever had a job, you know how long it takes to get two people on the same page. You and I have worked on things together to put plays together. We have to have 15 meetings with 10 different people to figure out where the thing's going to be and what time we're going to start. And I can't imagine doing a global conspiracy where nobody leaks it. But he does what a lawyer would do, which is take what the prosecution is presenting as fact and discuss whether or not it rises to the level of a crime. Or in this case, take it as fact and discuss how is this possible. Let's just get into some of the contradictions because they're really fun. So the book itself, the whole Pentateuch, is believed to be written by Moses. And a lot of people, even at the time, started thinking, you know, well, it wasn't written just by one person. Some people said, you're damn right, it was written by one person. Ingersoll stated that Christians, of course, maintain that God was the real author and it made little difference who God employed as the pen or the clerk. So it's either God wrote it directly as him just using a vessel, or a lot of people wrote it or something. But this book digs in and says that Moses was the actual writer. So it sort of blames Moses, which is why it's called Some Mistakes of Moses. And that's the take that this book lives on. Even though the book was written 300 years at least after his death. Where he also writes about his own death. But they say Joshua wrote that. And I'm like, nah, that's pretty convenient for the last eight paragraphs. Another interesting thing that was happening in this period was we were discovering all of the Mesopotamian treasures. They had discovered the Palace of Ashurbanipal in the 1870s, and that had an account of the flood, and it had proof that there were civilizations older than the Bible says are possible. Yeah, by thousands of years. According to the Bible's chronology and what we know about Mesopotamian archaeology, a thousand years after the fall of man, there was already an empire in Mesopotamia. But China. They don't even count China, but I mean, even in that region, this is Bronze Age mythology and creation stories of the region around the Fertile Crescent. That's what it is. And it's about a specific place in history that existed alongside many other places in history that we also know existed. I do want to point out before we get to those other things, something that is important to think about. If we believe that Moses is the actual writer, he says it's admitted at the same time that Moses was an adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter and enjoyed the ranks and privilege of a prince. Under such circumstances, he must have been well acquainted with the literature, philosophy, the religion of the Egyptians, and must have known what they believed and taught as to the creation of the world. And if the accounts of the origin of this earth is given to Moses is substantially like that given to the Egyptians, then we must conclude that he learned it from the Egyptians. Should we imagine that he was like divinely inspired because he gave the story to the Jews that the Egyptians gave to him? 
the Egyptians said in the first few days of the creation that God created the original matter, leaving it in a state of chaos. Then they said that God molded it into form and that on the third day that the breath of God moved on the face of the deep. And then the fourth, that God created simply by saying, let it be. All those are like the Egyptian mythology, right? The fifth day that God created light before the sun existed. All of that stuff was then taken later and then put into the Pentateuch by Moses, supposedly. But where did he get it from? Did God give it to him or did the Egyptians give it to him? And that's one of Ingersoll's really clever arguments. Another point about Moses, and Ingersoll couldn't have known this because this wasn't known at the time, but Sargon the Great was born a slave, sent down a river in a basket, found in the rushes and ended up becoming the cupbearer of Sharkali Shari, I think, and ended up becoming the king. It's the exact same story of Moses. And there was a book about Mesopotamian history that just came out that begins with a parade that Saddam Hussein threw in Baghdad, where it has floats depicting a baby being put in a basket and sent down a river. If you were to watch it as a Westerner, you would think, oh, he's telling the story of Moses. But he was actually telling the story of Sargon, who mythologically was the first ruler of the city of Baghdad, which they think is the city of Ur, or they say it is, that he was the uniter of that entire region and that Saddam Hussein was trying to fashion himself in the same image as Sargon the Great, the first leader of an empire that we know of. So, yeah, these myths are older than dirt. And they're certainly older than the Pentateuch, but maybe we could go with the Josephus argument that the devil put these <laughs> myths there to confound us. So, <laughs> so yeah, maybe that's what happened. But let's talk about the devil, because this is one of my favorite things in the book. And the creation story, he goes through every day of creation. When he goes through every day, he labels it Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, <laughs> yeah. Thursday. You know, the fourth day is Thursday, not the fourth day, it's Thursday. And I thought, I thought that was pretty clever and cheeky. It is very cheeky. And they also point out the thing that any atheist worth his salt is going to point out that there were plants the day before there was a sun. And so either there were plants that were around before there was any light or any way for them to be around for only one day. Or if you take it as ages rather than as metaphor, there were plants that were around for hundreds of thousands of years with no possible source of food. If you expand that into, let's say a day actually eats thousands of years, whatever the amount of time that a day actually means, then what is the sacrament of the Sabbath? What's the Sabbath? Why is it one day? When he rested, is that one day or is it a thousands of years? You can't say that a day means a thousand years and then later say he rested on this one day and then make that the Sabbath. And the other thing that he points out that is also pointed out by all the great atheists is that there's two accounts of creation in here. I should also shout out my friend Oren Nyman, who is a wonderful scholar of the Bible and from Israel and an amazing guitar player and a New Yorker. But he and I did something 10 years ago, we did something called Shavruta, where you get together with a close friend and read the Bible chapter by chapter once a week until you get through the five books of Moses. And we did that 10 years ago. I have the notes here somewhere, but that was one of the things that we noticed was specifically with the Ten Commandments and the creation, it's two stories. They're back to back and they're not the same. It's literally told two different ways. So to first believe every word in the Bible, you have to decide which one of those you want to believe because they're two stories that are told that aren't the same. The big question is, none of this is saying that God isn't real at all. None of this is saying that. It's just saying, look, did just a guy write this or did God write this? That's really what the main question is. In the context of this book, and let's say even in the context of this podcast, there could be a creator who is superhuman, divine, and all-knowing. That could be true, and the Bible could be total bullshit. Both of those things could be true. My religious position is very simple. I don't know everything. 
I don't know everything and I won't know everything. That's me. Yep. I can figure out what makes sense to me. The religion of Christianity doesn't particularly make sense to me. Catholicism does actually make a little bit of sense to me because you don't actually have to believe. You just have to do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I can wrap my head around that a little bit. It's an action item. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Here's the list of things you need to do for salvation. It's nice if you believe it, but if you don't believe it, just go tell your priest every week and you'll be okay. Okay. Monday. It's Monday. The world is void and without form, and darkness is flowing over the face of the deep. And then what happens? Well, he divides it. He splits the darkness and the light, just like a clean knife. How is there a day and a night? Well, that's where it gets all tricky. He immediately starts questioning some of the logics, and the piece immediately employs, like, every logic tool in the pile to explore these thoughts within this book. And from there, through the rest of the book, he takes these things that are written and compares them with things later in the book constantly. And it's one of the reasons why the book spoke to me the way that it did. I think he says, if God created the universe and there was a time when he commenced to create— Back of that commencement, there must have been an eternity. And in that eternity, what was God doing? Can we conceive of eternity because we can't conceive of the cessation of time? What is no time? The human brain cannot form what no time means. Which is interesting. This ties into some of my own work with technology and artificial intelligence is that digital technology has the opposite problem where digital technology can't conceive of time at all. And it has to find ways to fake time so that it can communicate with us. There's this great book. It talks about how will the end of the universe look. The way that he describes it is that as the universe is contracting, assuming there is still conscious life, they will have been able to develop some kind of artificial reality. As the universe is contracting, there will be a huge amount of energy available because the universe is contracting. The beings who have created this artificial reality will be able to live inside the artificial reality and power it with the power from the universe contracting. They will be able to slow time down to such a degree that the last moment of the universe will subjectively last an eternity for the beings in a virtual reality situation. But is there time in eternity? Can you measure eternity? No, you can't, but that's the idea is that digitally time doesn't exist, right? So if we can be in a digital world, time won't exist for us. So I don't know, maybe we're in a simulation and that's what was meant by this, but it gets into the argument of the unmoved mover. And the only way to stop this argument, right, is to say that God just did it. That's the Christian position, which is not that different from the Big Bang. Yes, but a choice, a choice by a sentient being. Yeah, I guess the difference is that the Big Bang, there was nothing and then everything happened all at once. The religious point of view is that there was nothing except for God. God is eternal, so God always existed. And then one day he decided to create a universe. Out of nothing. Create something out of nothing. That's the most important part, is that nothing existed for an eternity until the eternity changed to something existed. He can't wrap his mind around force and matter. Like, how can matter be formed if there's force, but there's no force because there's nothing? And he just kind of goes, you can see him riding in a circle and going kind of crazy on his Monday, as described as Monday, yeah. And the other thing Ingersoll tries to address, but he doesn't even know the half of it, is did God create just this world or are there other worlds? And his understanding of astrology reading this is quaint today, but he says there's probably thousands of other stars and we now know there's billions of other galaxies. Hold on, he's got days to get there, you know, <laughs> like Thursdays when he created the stars, right? <laughs> That's a whole thing. All right, so Monday. So he separates the light from the darkness, and apparently that was a whole day. Tuesday happens. He goes to bed, I guess. He wakes up. Here's Tuesday. And I love how he just plainly talks about the weeks. This is when he builds the firmament, the heavens and the earth, where he says, let's use a quote here. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters 
from the waters. So God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament and the waters which were above the firmament. Ingersoll states that Moses regarded the firmament as a solid affair. Moses thought that it was a solid hunk of water that suddenly got divided. I firmly believe that this is the beginning of what people are pulling out for the flat earth theory. If you really look at a diagram of what the firmament is, it looks like a flat earth. Let's not dignify that by calling it a theory. The flat earth concept. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't come from the Bible directly, this whole flat earth thing, but that must be where that concept comes from. People trying to draw out what the firmament meant. You've got like this dome around the earth and above it is the heavens and below it is us. And it's believed the Lord came down and God bowed the heavens to come down, which puts God above the earth within the firmament, which is also where all the water is. Whenever it rains, it's believed that the angels flip a switch and the rains come. When the flood of the earth happens, it's because the angels let loose the heavens, water from the firmament, drowning out the earth. That's why people prayed for rain, sort of that concept. Because they wanted them to open the spout. Exactly. To let the rain come, because that rain is in the firmament. Nobody knew that it was eight miles. (laughs) You know, like nobody really knew that that's just as far as it goes. And nobody really understood planets beyond that, which is created on Thursday, just to be clear. Right now, it's just the firmament. Divided the waters from the waters, you have heaven, but not really a discussion of what hell is. But this is sort of when hell is created, in theory, in the firmament. Wednesday, the dry land sees plants, trees, and oceans. Big day. What's the difference between dry land and a firmament? The firmament is the concept. So you've got the world below, and above you have the heavens. So Tuesday was like a big picture day. Like it created Earth, and the Earth is underneath all of the water, basically. Remember, gravity's not a thing when Moses wrote this book. So right now, Earth, mountains, everything exists, but it's all underwater. And when they say create dry land, the water drained and rivers were formed. And that's all Wednesday. So when you create dry land, that's actually creating the mountains, ranges, and the earth that we know of as today. Grass, all that stuff. He says that Moses probably had no idea the real form of what the earth was. He couldn't have known anything about gravity. He must have regarded the earth as a flat right? And suppose that it requires considerable force and power to induce water to leave the mountains and collect in the valleys. And just as soon as the water was forced to run downhill, dry land appeared and grass, immediately grass began to grow. He continues to say that the trees would bud and blossom. And this happened before a ray had left the quiver of the sun, he says, because light had not been created. It hadn't been created yet. He divided light from darkness, but he didn't create sunlight. So the earth didn't have light. The sun wasn't there projecting light onto the earth yet. So I always read Monday as creating day and night, but I guess the, the sun and the moon were not were not part of that. Yeah, Thursdays let there be light, right? So that's like four days later. Monday is just dividing things, making a light and a dark. And here's where it gets me for Wednesday. That is an argument that he doesn't make that I think is interesting. When you follow the path there, when was coal created? Coal is dead plant matter, right? Compressed by pressure and heat. So when was coal made in the mountains if it was created right then and there? Because plant matter just was formed. Same day the mountains came, plant matter came on top of it. And then when was oil formed? That's a whole nother monster. I mean, the only argument is that he created dry land with coal and dinosaur bones and a very convincing (laughs) archaeological record already in it. That's the only (laughs) argument you could make. That's fine. Yeah. I think that's the big part of what Wednesday was. 
And of course, some say, what does a day mean? And this sort of starts bringing up the argument. Moses didn't mean the word day period of 24 hours, but an immense measureless amount of time and space. That argument comes out of there. And then now you have Thursday, which is the sun, which is light, and the moon and the stars. And this is the let there be light. Yay. <laughs> right? Now it's right. <laughs> Let me actually give you an exact quote here. Can we believe that the inspired writer had any idea of the size of the sun? Did he know that the sun was 860,000 miles in diameter? Did he know the volume of the Earth is less than one millionth that of the sun? Did he know Jupiter was hundreds of times as large? All these things. When the writer says he created the stars and the moons, this is what he means. That Neptune, Uranus, Jupiter, Mars were all born before the Earth somehow, right? ridiculous. If you really think through it, he really makes a great argument about all of these. So part of going through all this, it seems mean to Christians a little bit or to people who say they believe every word in the Bible, because it's not hard. I think it was Penn Jillette said that the quickest way to make someone an atheist is convince them to read the Bible. I don't know if we're going to gain or lose listeners for, for my views on Christianity and religion here, but it's fine. I mean, we didn't write this book. No, exactly. <laughs> I just find it great. I didn't write it. But if you look at the way that most Christians read the Bible is in sections or in quotations. They'll quote specific chapters and verses, but it's very rarely viewed as a whole, as a narrative, because as a narrative, it doesn't make any sense. And the God of the Old Testament, which he gets into later, but I'm going to just do a little foreshadowing here. The God of the Old Testament is a horrible character. He's a villain. Yeah, yeah. So he also made the stars, right? So during that same day... In the book, it's like he made the stars also, just like an add-on. His argument, and I love this, is the division of labor is very striking. The work of the other days is nothing when compared to that of the fourth day. Is it possible that it required the same time and labor to make a grass, herbs, fruit trees, that it did to fill with countless constellations in the infinite expanse of space? Right. So like based on Moses's thing, it took so long to make some plants and the earth and stuff like that. But then one day to, you know, the rest of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which even in Ingersoll's time, they had no real understanding. I mean, we probably have no understanding of how big the universe is. Ours is probably as advanced from Ingersoll's as Ingersoll's was from Moses, given the sort of exponential expansion of knowledge. But we still don't know. We just have better graphics. You know, we can we can really lay out like, oh, that's how big I am compared to the universe, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there were very few infographics in the Chautauquas, as I understand it. But even in 1879, he says, draw a six inch circle on a piece of paper and take a pin of a needle and poke it next to it. And that's the size of the earth compared to the size of the sun. There's a grasp of it there, but out of the universe. Yeah. This conflicts with what we pretty much know from geology was how the Earth was formed and how we've been able to observe other stars and solar systems in different parts of this process. And it doesn't take into account the asteroid belt that they didn't know existed. And some of his astronomy is incorrect and outdated, but it's still more correct than mosaic astronomy. I have a note here in chapter 24. He says, science has succeeded in breaking the chains of theology. A few years ago, science endeavored to show that it was not consistent with the Bible. The tables have turned and our religion is endeavoring to prove that the Bible is not inconsistent with science. The standards at the time had been changed. When we get to Noah, we'll talk about that a little bit more because I want to really rake Ken Ham over the coals a little bit. <laughs> and I intend to do so when we get to his area of expertise. Let's jump to Friday. On Friday, he did the creatures that lived in the sea and the creatures that fly. That's it. That's all. Let's be clear. He didn't make cattle yet. He made the creatures that live in the sea and the creatures that fly. So he made some birds and he made some whales. 
Right. If you're to believe the account of creationism, he made all of the birds, you know, the birds that rely on, you know, elephants and cattle and lizards and owls. Like what were owls eating? Other birds? But that's part of the other question, right? So if he didn't make the creatures that crawl or anything like that, how long is a period of time? Is it a day or is this millions of years where we had birds that died and weren't eaten by bacteria, right? Because bacteria didn't exist. Worms didn't exist. Was it just a sea of dead birds? <laughs> you know, just like... perfectly preserved bird corpses <laughs> all over for thousands of years. Or roses or tree leaves or seeds or anything like that. None of that stuff rotted away if bacteria and worms and all that stuff doesn't exist. So how many years did that go? Was that a day? Is that a millions of years? You really have to ask yourself things. It's absurd. It becomes quite absurd really quickly, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so that's Friday. All right. And on Saturday, we're rounding third here. He's on Saturday. Saturday is when he did animals that lived in the land and finally humans, which is a whole can of worms there. Uh, get it? <laughs> Let's see. I think the quote is, let the earth bring forth the living creatures of the kind, cattle and creeping and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. So this is when he makes fish, herbs, fruit, bearing trees, all that stuff. Before that existed, none of that stuff existed until here. And for some reason in this chapter, he goes into a long, and I don't know why he chose this chapter to do it, a long rant about how either man or God directly wrote this book and that the words were chosen deliberately. He says, if a being of infinite wisdom wrote the Bible or caused it to be written, he must have known exactly how his words would be interpreted by all the world. And he must have intended to convey the very meaning that was conveyed. He must have known by reading the book that man would form an erroneous view as to the shape, antiquity, and size of the world, that he would be misled as to the time and order of creation, that he would have the most contemptible views of the creator, and that this, quote, sacred word would be used to support slavery and polygamy, that it would build dungeons for the good and light flames to consume the brave people, and therefore he must have intended that these results should follow. He must have known that thousands of millions of men and women never could believe the Bible, and that the numbers of unbelievers would increase to the exact ration of civilization, and therefore he must have intended that result. If God wrote this. If God wrote the Bible, then he wrote it knowing that this podcast was going to be recorded. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like you must have because infinite wisdom. At this point, we've gone through the seven days. We've created man. So we've gotten to the argument, which is probably the most powerful argument against theism, which is that if God is good, he is not God. And if God is God, he is not good. Meaning that if he's a benevolent God, there's no reason why he would have created things like this and made people fight with each other and been so glib in his creation account. And if he didn't do that on purpose, then he's not omnipotent. And this is a point that atheists have made for a long time. It's a point that I guess Ingersoll is the first iteration of this point that I've heard. There is a thought that I had when I was reading this. It sort of led me thinking, like, does the Bible talk about the development of the human form at all? Like, I know it talks about babies and children, but does it talk about the fact that when a child is born, they don't have knees? And once you have knees, then you can learn how to walk? Like, none of that's described there. When Adam and Eve were made, they were made as grown-ass humans. And I may be wrong, but does it account for the creation of a baby? Was God ever a baby? by the basis of Moses. And if so, how long was he a baby for? Like he just created man. But man is a baby growing. This is random, it's not in the book, but it always made me wonder. It's again, this goes into the argument and the question that we were talking about before about how do you debunk conspiracy theory, right? Is you don't ask why, you ask how. These are great questions to ask when you're talking about 
inspired texts, that's a reasonable question. Did God create man as man? And then if so, did God create Adam as an adult? And if so, how old? Was he 20? Was he 30? Was he 27? Was he 50? And how old was Eve? And why were they that age? It does say that he cursed woman with childbearing. So maybe he at that point decided, okay, I'm going to make this childbearing an ordeal. But if that's the case, what a horrible thing. As someone who's witnessed now, I would say participated in, but really it's just witnessed. I had nothing to do with these two births other than having sired the children that were in question. But it is not something that a benevolent creator would have designed. This is a bloody, messy affair, and I can't imagine any benevolent creator wishing it upon anyone. So... <laughs> few things. First of all, the name of that book that I couldn't remember where the society creates virtual reality powered by the contraction of the universe at the end of time. That is The Fabric of Reality by Daniel Deutsch. It is a crazy, insane, awesome book about reality and time in the multiverse, and I highly recommend it. Also, I hang my head in shame. Sargon the Great was not the cupbearer of Shar Kalishari. He was the cupbearer of Lugal Zugezi. I should have known that. That should have been on the tip of my tongue. And I'm really, really sorry. Last thing is that this will be two episodes. The first episode, we just set up the book and we talked about the first seven days of creation. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about Noah's Ark and the rest of the Pentateuch. So it's worth coming back for. Also, we will be talking about those sweet, sweet, beautiful giants that God created. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, edited and produced by Santiago Ramones. Santiago has his own podcast called Bit Depth. You can hear it wherever you want. It's really good. Check in for new episodes every Friday. Keep reading. He didn't understand what gravity was. That came much later. Well, to be fair to Moses, we still don't really understand what gravity is. <laughs> mm -hmm.